Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. You know, there's something unique about being in a place and, and hearing a sermon and, and catching the facial expressions, the every nuance of, of what goes on in the preaching of a sermon that cannot ever quite be captured on tape, maybe perhaps not even on video, just something about being physically there but uh, I, I wish everybody could have heard the sermon that, that I heard Brother Jimmy Fulmer preach uh, Friday night from Nehemiah chapter 7 to chapter 9 and verse 7. I'm not going to try to preach his sermon, but I, I do want to just say a word about the message. And, and uh, if you had a notion to get the tape, I'm sure it would be a blessing to you. But he tells here at the end of this is this is toward the end of the book of Nehemiah when when the, the wall had been built, the work had been accomplished, and they were dedicating the wall and and uh they gathered all the people up as they did in the book of Ezra, and they read the entire law to them. To every man, woman, and child. They 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 verbally read the law took some time for it, for it to happen. They didn't read it all in a day. So they read it a fourth of the day and then meditated on it a fourth of the day. And uh, every every word of the law. And there was a great, uh, great uh, energy and excitement about the work of the Lord. Uh, but as is very often the case, the excitement comes easily after the work's done. And it comes with more difficulty before it is to be started and during the course of it. And that's what I'd like to most mostly address this morning. But in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7 he says, Thou art the Lord the God, who didst choose Abram and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham and found his heart faithful before thee and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and so on. Um, now, brother, brother Jimmy did something here that that uh, uh, I, I draw I draw personally a line between spiritualizing a text and making a spiritual application. Um, spiritualizing is when you say, "Now this is what this verse is talking about." Spiritual application is is when you say, "Now this is talking about this," but here's a here's an application of this, and and the application was well made. Because the Bible tells us that, that we are all the children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told in the scriptures that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, but one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of, of Christ is a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And so we're taught that all who believe on the Lord Jesus are the children of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham. And the message related to the idea that just as God dealt with Abraham, he deals with us. 
And very uncharacteristically, I ran a word check on the, on the word Abram. And you get out of the book of Genesis, the, the word Abram is almost not used in the rest of the Old Testament because in the book of Genesis, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And so he's always referred to as Abraham thereafter. This is one of the rare places in the Old Testament where the word Abram is used. Now that, that tells us this. What God did for Abram, he does for every one of his children. You see, Abram was down there in Ur of the Chaldees, as far as we know, in the midst of idolatry, and one of them. It says, and thou art the Lord, the God who did choose Abram. Abram didn't just decide, you know, this is a terrible place to be, and I don't believe in all this idolatry, and, and I'm going to better myself and, 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 uh, and leave this place. Just like you and I. We didn't just decide one day, well, I'm tired of my sins. I'm, I'm going to leave them. I'm going, I'm going to better myself. I, I want to, I want to do the right thing. Oh no, my friends. The Apostle Paul was not that way. He didn't just decide on the road to Damascus. He didn't just say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I, this isn't right. It's not right to persecute these Christians. No, the Apostle Paul was thinking his wicked, seething thoughts against Christians until the time that God struck him with the light of heaven. And just as he did the Apostle Paul, and just as he did for me, and just as he did for Abraham, God chose Abram. And he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Just like God calls every child of grace at some time in his life out of the darkness of this world into the light of the kingdom. And he brought him forth into the good land of God. Well, like I told you, I can't preach Brother Jimmy's sermon, but I wish you'd heard it. It was, it was a, uh, it was a great, it was a great message. And, and, uh, you know, in, over there in the book of Exodus, it speaks of, of Moses uh, bringing forth honey from the rock. One place, one place water, another place honey from the rock. How do you get honey from a rock? Well, um, when a person is is uh, like uh, J.P. Boyce, um, I heard I read I read a quote of his. It's in our little blue book there. He was the first president of the Theological Seminary at, at Louisville, Kentucky, Southern Baptist Seminary, an excellent uh, excellent theologian whose whose uh, systematic theology is still studied by people who love the doctrine of grace. And uh, he said, he said, when a person's understanding is open to the truth of God's sovereignty, he said, there's scarcely a page in the Bible that does not furnish proofs that God is not only sovereign in acts of providence, but he's sovereign in, in the work of salvation. So I'm glad Brother Jimmy's eyes were open to uh, Nehemiah 9-7, because Abram's story is my story. He is every man's story who is, who is a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the book of Nehemiah is, is one of the most, of course, inspirational books in all the, all the Bible. Very inspirational book. Because it tells the story of, of a man and of a people who overcame almost overwhelming odds. And we're thankful that in, in, in the, the kingdom of God, we, we don't deal with odds. Uh, we deal with God's sovereign purpose, but humanly speaking, overcame uh, almost insurmountable odds. Humanly speaking, they were insurmountable. To accomplish a great work in an amazing amount of time, and, and under, under 
terrible duress. Now, we make many spiritual applications here, but of course you need to make the application and I need to make the application in in my heart today in whatever way and place and situation I find myself in life. Here, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for for the king. And um, the cupbearer, of course, is a position of, of tremendous responsibility, of tremendous trust. Uh, the king Artaxerxes here, they're like every other king, Every other political leader who's ever lived in the history of the world, there are always people who would, who would love to see them dead out of the way, whether for political ambition or just mental illness or whatever the case might be. And so in this day, one of the ways that that was done was to poison. And so many times political leaders, kings and so forth were slipped poison. And so what the king would have someone do is to sample his food in his presence, and if then if he didn't if he didn't keel over pretty soon, then the food was safe and he'd eat it. Now you, to to be the taster, you you had to make sure that everything was right where it ought to be. You had trusted people under you, uh, you had confidence in the system, because if any if anybody dies in this deal, it's it's you. And I don't know, maybe they pulled some slave up out of the prison to give a little something to every time first. I don't, I don't know how all that worked, but it was a trusted position. So Nehemiah was in this position. He got word that, that, uh, the people who'd gone back to Jerusalem, and, uh, we talked about this a little Wednesday night, uh, we spoke out of the book of Haggai, uh, that 20, 20 something, 30 years before this episode takes place, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has has uh, allowed the Jews to go back. And after many delays and overcoming many obstacles there, we read about in the book of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple in in Jerusalem. But, but uh, in those ancient cities, if there was no wall around the city, the city was totally vulnerable to every kind of, of marauding band of, of thieves and cutthroats and certainly... There could be no safety, uh, there could be no security in a place where there was no wall around the city. But Nebuchadnezzar's uh, fury against Jerusalem, uh, when he came and destroyed it, was so great that he burned down all the gates with fire, the wooden gates. He, he, he destroyed the wall, knocked down the walls of the, of the city, and of course he utterly destroyed the, the temple there. So his, his work of destruction was utter and complete. The desolation was... was uh, totally devastating in Jerusalem. So he got word that, that they have rebuilt the temple, but the city's just in a terrible state. It's, it's, a, it's a sad picture. And God burdened Nehemiah's heart with the desire to go and do something for the people of Israel, his people, the Jewish people. So he got uh, permission from Artaxerxes to go back and to see what could be done. And I saw something that I've never quite noticed before, and it's just subjective, but we marvel at what Nehemiah did in such a short period of time. In 52 days, Nehemiah took a, a, a wall around a city of great substance 
And, of course, the, the raw materials were right there at hand. The, the stones had been knocked down. They were left right where they lay when Nebuchadnezzar left. No doubt they were, they were substantial stones. And, and in 52 days, he had set the wall up. Because uh, one reason why he felt, no doubt, such a, a spirit of urgency is because he saw how that they had ended up dragging their feet on the temple. It took them 20 years to rebuild the temple, which was not nearly as architecturally a formidable task as rebuilding the wall. And, and uh, they, they suffered the same kinds of things that we're going to look at here in the book of Nehemiah to discourage them and to stop, stop the work. But in 52 days, an amazing transformation had taken place. Almost before the enemies of God could, could fully mobilize to oppose the work, and mobilize they did, and oppose the work they did, but by the time they could really pull their forces together and, and, and do something, the work was finished. In an amazing 52 days. Well, the story is certainly a, a very, a very, uh, inspiring story. But what I want us to look at, particularly this morning, out of the book of Nehemiah, and uh, then tonight, if the Lord will let us live till then and doesn't change our, our minds, I'm going to speak to you out of the book of Malachi, somewhat along the same lines as I spoke Wednesday night out of the book of Haggai, about the zeal for God's house. And I think about what was said of the Lord Jesus Christ when he, had, when he chased the money changers out of the temple and declared that my house shall not be a house of merchandise. You've made it a den of thieves. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And it said they remembered later what it was said of him in the scriptures that the zeal of, of thine house hath eaten me up. It has consumed me. I am, I, am, I am passionate about the public worship of God. And that's what Haggai, the book of Haggai is about. That's what the book of Malachi is about, the public worship of God, because the public worship of God had, had basically ceased to exist during the, the, the uh, 70 years captivity under Babylonian and then later Persian captivity until they were allowed to go back under Cyrus. For, for 70 years, the temple lay in ruins. There was no public worship of God. That is, the coming together of the congregation of the Lord to worship God. And, and what I want us to see in, in this, this last episode of the Old Testament, the rebuilding of the temple of, of Jerusalem, uh, in the book of Ezra, the rebuilding of the wall, that is the city. The reason the wall is being rebuilt is because the public worship of God cannot go on effectively if people cannot live there in security, in physical security. And what I hope that God will continue to do for this church is to give us a passion for the public worship of God. Oh, I tell you, my friends, I believe that a passion for the public worship of God is very near to the heart of God. And if we do not, if we cannot enter into that fully, we need to read carefully the book of Haggai and the book of Nehemiah and, and the book of Nehemiah and the book of Malachi. Because God is, has brought judgment on Jerusalem because, in the first place, because they had neglected and profaned the public worship of God. And, and uh, even after Ezra was blessed to come back to, to, uh, to Jerusalem and rebuild, start the pro- process of helping rebuild the temple, Ezra being kind of the spiritual uh, motivator of the work, the, the governor 
uh, his name was Zerubbabel, and the high priest's name was, was Joshua. And Ezra provided the, the, the prophet's place, the preacher's place, the, the uh, motivation, the, the support in that sense. Um, and so it is in this day that there is, there is not a place of the public worship of God in the sense of one has to go to a, a location, although we do that here. But wherever the church of the living God, the called out ones, the ecclesia of God, the called out ones, wherever it is that they have said they will meet, and at whatever times that they have set to meet in the public worship of God, my dear friends, I believe that it is near the heart of God for the children of God to have a passion for the public worship of God. Look around you. Look around you at the people, people around you. Have you ever, have you ever known of anyone to be spiritually strong who was weak in that place? Have you ever? I could not, I could not call to mind one person in my whole in, entire lifetime who has been lackadaisical about the public worship of God who was spiritually strong. But I tell you also this. I've never known anyone who was truly, truly passionate about the public worship of God. Now, and, and that's, I mean by that more than going to church, although one cannot have a passion for the public worship of God without going to church, but that's not the pinnacle of, of, a, of a passion for the public worship of God. Uh, being being a, a, a warm body on the pew is, is not, you know, the final test of passion. But the final test of passion is what are you doing when you get there? Now, beloved, now that's the test of passion. The passion that, that God loves, it's demonstrated in the books of, of Haggai and Malachi and all throughout the book of Acts, is, is where God's people long to come together into the, into the public worship of God. They long to worship Him and praise Him and hear from Him and preach His Word and hear His Word and love and serve and honor and adore Him and then go home and do what they've learned. Now, that is a true passion for God. And I've never known anyone to have it who was anything but spiritually strong. You look around you. And every spiritual straggler you have ever known. And you'll always notice in his life the lack of passion for God's house. God said in the book of, in the book of Haggai, that's why, that's why you're not, you're, that's why you're not having blessings. In their sense, it was physical blessings. There were, there were tangible, measurable results of their, their lack of passion for the public worship of God, which was demonstrated in their day by letting the, the rebuilding of the temple languish for 20 years. They were, they were allowing, they were, they were so self-absorbed they, they met some, they met some opposition, and they let that opposition stop the work. Uh, and not only did they let the opposition stop the work, when the work was stopped, there was, there was, the inertia was lost, and they were not able to kind of get back going again, and so they became self-absorbed. They became absorbed in their own lives. They became absorbed, Haggai said, you, you build your own houses, you seal them, you, you do all the things you can to make your own place comfortable, but what about the, the house of God? 
He says the public worship of God's languishing because you're self-absorbed. You're thinking only of your own pleasure, of your own comfort, of your own well-being. And so it is, my friends, when people become self-absorbed, then their passion for God's house, their passion for the public worship of God will wane proportionately. But oh, every, every once in a while, God will be pleased to stir in the hearts of men and to cause them to hunger after the things of God in such a way that can only be satisfied when the saints of God come together in the public worship of God. Now that's the focus of these last books of the Old Testament, That chronologically, the last books of the Old Testament. The book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, Malachi, which is the last book, Haggai, Zechariah. And so, and so if, if God would bless us, and, and when I say if God would so bless us, that's, that's not to say that I believe that, that we've, we've had none of this. For indeed, uh, the Ripley Church has been, has been known for its, its love of the public worship of God. That has been something that has been stressed here, and it's something that's been emphasized from, from, from day number one. It was, it was, it was a huge part of Brother Wallace's vision and all the people who gathered around him also shared that vision and, and, and the public worship of God became, became meaningful. And, and, and I, I hope that God will bless that to always be meaningful in the souls of all of God's people who come and worship here because this is awfully important to God. If you've not read the book of Haggai and Malachi, I, I hope you will carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully, meditatively read those two short Old Testament prophecies and see what a premium God placed on the public worship of His name. But there are many hindrances. There are many hindrances to a passion for the public worship of God. In our day, it's the church of God. It is the Zion of God. The Bible uses all of those Old Testament references to refer not to a physical place, but to a spiritual reality of the church of the living God. The, the called out ones who have, who have congregated together to worship, worship the Lord. But there are many hindrances. And they were experienced in the day of Nehemiah. When he went back to rebuild the wall, and the whole purpose of the wall was to facilitate the public worship of God. The public worship of God would languish even with the temple because there was no security, no physical security there. And they had to have that in this, in this culture and climate. And so I'd like for us to think for a while this morning about the hindrances to a passion for the public worship of God. Now what we could say about that would also apply to every spiritual work that God has given you to do. The same thing would apply to a passion for godly families. I, I, I rejoice when I see families Fathers, mothers, with a passion for, for a godly home, a clean home, a home where 
the children are taught the word of God, where they are protected from vile and, and hateful influences of the world. But I tell you, there are many hindrances. You husbands, that God would give you a passion for being spiritual leaders in your home. But there are many hindrances. You, you sisters, that God would give you a holy passion for being a Titus 2 woman. But there are many hindrances. Young people in trying to live a clean, godly life in this world. That God would, would raise up a seed of young people who have a passion for holiness. Yea, in all of our hearts there would be a passion for holiness, but there are many hindrances. And I suggest to us this day that, that the, the hindrances that Nehemiah experienced in rebuilding this wall, which was not just a physical task, but a spiritual task, just like building our homes is a physical task and a spiritual task. Being godly husbands and faithful wives and obedient children and, and holy men and women is, is a formidable task. It, it involves physical things that we do and we don't do. It also involves a spiritual work, but yet there are many hindrances. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he takes a few days, just a very few days, and, and he takes, he takes a, a survey of the work that needs to be done. He, he goes out late one night, rides his horse around the city walls, and he, and he makes note of all of the places where there are, where all of the work has to be done. And he gets in his mind what must be done to do this. But Nehemiah's first obstacle to overcome is probably the most difficult one of all. I relate to this problem. Because it's a problem of getting people started. Now, I'm the kind of person that if I ever actually start something, I'm just, I'm just uh, consumed with it till it's done. My problem is getting, getting a passion to start. That, that's, that's my thing. Um, I'm bad to put off starting something that I need to start. Um, I've, I've, I've been here, I've been back home a week and two or three days, and I haven't typed the first word on my journal yet. And, uh, and, and that's looming over me right now. I've, I must, I must get that, and, and, uh, I'm, I'm fixing to start that. <laughs> you know how that goes, don't you? I'm fixing to get cranked up on that, but I tell you, when, when I do, I'm, I'm, that's gonna consume me till it's done. And that's the good part of that, and the bad part is getting the fire built under me in the first place. Well, you know, getting people motivated to do what they ought to do is, is probably, well, Mary Poppins said it well. Well begun is half done. If you can ever really get started, if you can really put, get motivated, then, then the, and, and start the project, start, start the work, then, it, then it's, you know, it's half done. And that's true. So, so Nehemiah has come into a place that's, that's demoralized. That's what motivated him in the first place. He, he knew that the people were demoralized. They were able to come back, many of them, but, and, and the, and the temple had been rebuilt after 20 years of, of, uh, of, uh, 
labor and delays and, and uh, scoldings by the prophets and, and threats by God. They've, the, the work's done there, but, but it's not right. The wall is not built. The, the people are still vulnerable and, and, and it, it can't be really what it ought to be till that wall's up. So how are you going to get the people motivated to undertake in any human terms a, a task that looks almost impossible? Think about it. Probably 10,000 people who have, who live in this area. I believe that's the number they gave of the people, the first wave of people who went back to, to Jerusalem. Whatever people were living there already. And, and, uh, in that kind of a culture and in that season of their lives, probably making a living, surviving was a daily challenge. But this wall's gotta be rebuilt. Well, that thing will take years. It'll take years to rebuild this wall. How are we going to do this? Well, the fact of the matter is, they did it in 52 days. They did it less than two months. Because, because God blessed Nehemiah to build a fire under them that said, I can do this. This can be done. And so, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our church. That God would keep the spiritual vision of, of a passion for the public worship of God ever before us. That God would fill you men with a, with a passion for, for teaching your families the eternal truths of God's Word. That God would give you men a passion for, for keeping your homes free and clear of of things that would hinder that spiritual work, of the wrong kinds of, of programs on television and, and, and internet and, and books and magazines or whatever that would be a, a stumbling block or a hindrance to, to godliness in, in our homes. That God would fill our men with a passion for this. And God would fill our, our women with a passion to, to love that and to support that and to encourage that. But whether, whether that encouragement or, or support comes or not as it ought to in every way, God still calls us to the work. And so, Nehemiah motivates the people. He says, let's rebuild the wall. We can do this if we get it, if we, if we are energetic and we trust in the Lord and, and we work hard, we can do this. And so God blessed that the people caught the vision. From Nehemiah. The vision of building the wall. What a blessing it would be to have the wall back up. What a, what a blessing it would be for the public worship of God. What it would be for their own personal safety and security. And, and so God blessed them to, to, uh, to start the work. But that's the first hindrance. The first hindrance is, is a spirit of, of, hey, this, this can't be done. I can't do this. I know you've been there. I know you've experienced that that almost sickening wave that comes over about whatever it is and says, hmm, this is impossible. There's just too many, there's just too many obstacles. There's too much against us. There's too much against me. 
I hadn't seen hide nor hair of Jerry Manning for six weeks until Friday morning uh, when I went to McDonald's to pick up Elmo. And, th- and there he was, walking across the parking lot. Pulled up, blew on the horn. He got in the van with me. Jerry, what you doing? Well, you know, he's looking. You see, there's always, there's always this thing of you fixing to do something. It's always a hindrance. I said, this is all off the record, okay? I said, Jerry, you know, you know that most people don't expect you to ever make this right. You know that, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. I said, I'm, I'm a little bit doubtful of you myself. But I said, I'm praying for you. Because it'll be the best thing you ever do if you, if you make this right. I don't care what you have to do to make it right. Well, he says he's going to. But who knows? You see, uh, someone has well said that, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Ah, oh, good intentions. You've had lots of them before. And hindrance is always a road. But I want to tell you something. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. My dear friends, God has never called you personally. God has never called this church collectively to do anything that we can't do. We, we have to be like the Apostle Paul and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, there are a lot of people who have always stood in the wings watching this church. I remember they used to make comments about it back when we first started meeting, twenty almost 24 years ago. They'd say things like, yeah, give them a few years. The new will wear off and they'll, they'll, pe- they'll, they'll be like everybody else. They'll be, they'll be in ho-hum religion before too long. I remember people making comments. And you know what? They're still out there. Nehemiah had his sand ballots. And you and I have got our sand ballots. There are always people in the wings. They may be in your own families watching you trying to rear your children and say, yeah, it'll be the same. They'll, they'll give in. They'll, they can't, they can't do this. And, and, and a few of them have got no better brains about them. Got so little heart about them, they'll actually tell you this. You can't do that. It, you know, the W.C. Fields mentality. It'll never work. You'll all be killed. <laughs> well, Sam Ballot's been saying that for a long time, and he's still saying it today. But I want to tell you something. You can do it through the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, when he looked at the, the, the work that God had given him, was overwhelmed when he said, And who is sufficient for these things? And he answered his own question when he says, I thank God that our sufficiency is of God. And so it is with you. The sufficiency of this church to always hold forth and to promote a holy passion for the public worship of God. Let me tell you, my friends, it is absolutely within our reach. Because our God is a great God. I don't trust in preachers. I don't trust in deacons. I don't trust in church members. I don't trust in creeds, articles of faith, or doctrine. I tell you, my friends, I trust in the living God. And God has said, call unto me, 
And I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Let me tell you, the strength of God is available for every child of grace to do everything that is right and pleasing in the sight of God. And there are always the sand ballots. Verse chapter 4, verse 1. It came to pass that when Sanballat heard we build the wall, he was angry, wroth, and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah and the Ammonites that were with him, he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he'll even break down their stone wall. Well, there's Sanballat. Sanballat saying what he's still saying today. You can't do it. You can't do it in the day in which you live. Mercy. Anybody see the article on the back of the religious page in the Tupelo Journal yesterday? Uh, yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> well, they do, did a write-up. I'm going to. I know the preacher. I, I've, I uh, don't know him well, but I, I know him. Heard him preach a time or two. Anyway, um, they did a little write-up on a primitive Baptist church somewhere in the Tupelo area, and. and uh, of course, now I'm, I'm going to I'm going to hope just out of charity that that uh, this some of this was due to editorial constriction. Um, maybe maybe they didn't say everything that was said and just kind of lumped it all up. But basically they you know they told all the things primitive Baptists don't do, which you know that's I'm not ashamed of anything we don't do. Frankly, I'm not ashamed of the fact that we don't use musical instruments. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm grateful for it. I was talking to a guy at Grace Chapel last night who's been visiting there for the last two months. And he's just like some of you have been who've been out there in the religious world. He is sick up to here with the entertainment mentality. And when he found Grace Chapel, he, he just said, Hallelujah. I didn't know there was a place like this on the planet where people just come together and, and, and worship God in simplicity and lift up their voices to praise God. And we've got a preacher up there who's preaching the Word of God. He's not trying to draw in a bunch of entertainment and stuff. He was thrilled out of his mind with what he had found. Well, uh, I, I believe there's some other people like that out there in the world. And I believe we're in a good position to, to reach out to them and minister to them. And uh, he wasn't quite sure about the doctrine. You know, that's kind of the way that goes. But you know what? If a man will ever just take a real good, honest look at the Bible, it's not hidden. What we believe is plainly there. And and, and I've, I've never run into anybody who, once you plainly, simply, lovingly brought the truth to them and said, oh, I don't believe that. You know, that's it's 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 there. It's in black and white, plain, simple English. Um, well, I chased a rabbit and forgot where I started. Yeah, okay, thanks, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, he's got it. So, uh, so, uh, the, the, of course, the thing that caught my eye was, we don't, primitive Baptists don't believe in sending out missionaries. Well, you know what? There's a lot of primitive Baptists who don't. That, that's absolutely true. And it's sad. 
But you know what? You look at a situation like that and you think, hmm, this, this is almost insurmountable. The old Baptists have been stuck in that rut too long to ever come out. But you know what? I'm glad that God blessed us to come in contact with a, a, a man with an evangelistic spirit named Jeff Harris. And he said, yeah, it can be done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay hold of God's grace. And I'm going to go do what God called not only me to do personally, but our churches to do. And from there, look at what's happened in just in less than 10 years. And so, yeah, I'm going to write a letter. I don't know if they'll publish it, but I'm going to write a letter and tell them that there was a misstatement. Because you can go back to the earliest writings of the, the distinctive writings of primitive Baptists after the other Baptists decided they didn't want what, what they'd had all through the, the centuries. Uh, the Black Rock Address, they said, yes, sir, we believe in sending out missionaries. We believe in the Great Commission. We believe in sending the gospel out. The primitive Baptists have, have, have never historically been against that. Now, practically, unfortunately, that's been the case for the last 50 years. But, but we, be, we believe it. We just don't believe in somebody besides the church doing it. We don't believe in parachurch organizations that, that, that are, that are take, have taken the place of the church of God to do that. Or to train, train people for the ministry. All those other things. The Bible's clear about that. So, you know, you can look at that kind of a situation and say, Oh, this is, this will never, this will never work. And so Sam Ballack comes up and he says, he punches his buddies. They're all, you can just see them sitting on their horses up there, can't you? They're up working on the wall. They're doing their very best. And they're, you know, they're slapping their knees and punching their buddies and said, Hey, you know, if a fox jumped up on that wall, it'd fall down. What are you guys doing up there? You know, this is crazy. You'll never get this thing done. You're going to do this in a day? Man, these guys were busy. They were hustling. All around the wall, men were working and nothing had quite happened yet, but Stan Ballard heard about it. And so it is in the life of God's people today. There are always the enemies of God saying, you know, you live in, you can't, in, you can't insulate your children from the world. Why? What are you going to do? Put them in a greenhouse or something? What are they going to do when they get out there in the real world? Why? Your kids won't even be able to socialize with somebody else. And, you know, they don't realize that's what we're trying to keep them from, socializing. You know, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, and the only thing children know how to do is foment one another's foolishness. I don't. That's good, that's good kids. That's that's not you know the ones out here on the streets. It, this that's good kids. That's my kids. That's all. That's all my kids ever knew how to do. Um, and so and so you know the world's full of you can't do this. Why you hadn't even got a college degree? Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of people with a college degree that I wouldn't trust hardly to pick up the dogs, much less teach school. I went to school with a bunch of them. That's one of the things that convinced me I can't do this. Those people are going to be teaching my kids with no more morals than they've got, no more sense than they've got. You know, I, I, I even took a course down here at Blue Mountain a couple of years ago to renew my certificate. And, and you know, good people down there, they're not, not wicked to have a mind to work. There's no end to the good that can be done. You know, people have been amazed at, at what this little congregation of people have done here in the last 24 years. People have been amazed at that. Number one, they're amazed that we're still, we're still together. That, that, that amazed them in the first place. And that, that is amazing. And, and, uh, we, we attribute that altogether to the grace of God, don't we? We don't, we don't attribute that to the preachers. We don't attribute that to the deacons. We don't attribute to our own wicked hearts. We attribute it to the grace of God. Because God has given us a vision not only of what can be when we work together, but of what an awful thing it would be if we didn't. We've, we've all seen in other places what, what we've even seen our own church uh, with too close for comfort sometimes. What could happen when if, if men do not love 
unity. And so they prayed and went on with the work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the, and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, that they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God, and we set a watch against them day and night because of them. And, and so the great picture there, they, they all went out to work with a, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They all had to go about this hard, arduous task encumbered with, with their weapons of war. But they had to be ready on a moment's notice because of the threat of physical violence. And you know, we're thankful to live in a land where that's not been a, a, a major uh, consideration of physical violence, but it's not been absent in our land. And even right now, they're struggling with this over in, in, uh, in India, where these laws are being passed. Brother Gunas said there's another one of the states in India that's, that's on the brink of passing the same law that's been passed in his own state, making it a crime to force someone to, to uh, be converted to some other religion. And, of course, it ought to be a crime. But the problem is, forced conversion is, is, uh, is a subjective thing. And so some of our brethren there in India may come under physical persecution. Yea, in other places of the world, other Christians are being physically persecuted because of their faith. And Satan's always tried that ploy. If he can't get you to just quit by, by insulting you, which some people, they're, they're so weak, it's just a good insult will put them off the wall. But may God bless all of us to be of such a mind and of such a character and of such determination that no insult's going to throw us off the wall. Uh, sticks and stones, you know, might break our bones, but words will never hurt us. Let, let the heathen rage. That's what, that's what they said here. And so the threat of physical violence. They, they threatened to attack the work. And so they showed, they showed a, a, a show of force. The, they put a watch on the wall. They were ever vigilant against the attacks. They worked with their weapons of war in one hand, their weapons of building, their tools of building in another. So they uh, they were not able to to uh, stop the work there. Oh, but I'll tell you something. Every time Satan backs off, he comes back with a more insidious approach. And this next one is pretty, pretty rough. Really, really rough. I don't, not many people survive this. There have been a lot of people survive just making fun of them. There have been a lot of people survive threats of physical violence and even the, even, even physical acts of violence. Well, but this next one's rough. Really, really rough. Chapter 5. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren of the, their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also uh, there were that said, We have mortgaged our land, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Ready. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our land and vineyard. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. And I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers 
and said unto them, You exact usury every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. So the third attempt of Satan to stop the work is internal dissent. Oh boy, that's a tough one. United we stand, divided we fall. Is the old saying, and it's well said. And so there have been many a good intention thwarted from internal dispute, division. There have been many a home that had potential, but a husband and a wife could not agree, could not come to consensus, could not be agreed on a course of action. Many a family torn by dissent. Many a church torn by dissent from within. And Satan hates the work of God, especially does Satan hate the public worship of God that so often it is thwarted by this method. So much so, I bet you know people this very day who say, I I could never join another church. I've seen too much trouble in churches. I know of an old woman who died without a church home because she had seen division and turmoil and trouble in the very house of God and so determined never to make herself a part of another one and lived and died in, in that bitterness. You see, the sheep of God are such that if you can, if you can scatter them, then you've thwarted the work. And so what you and I must do, what this church must do, what you and your family must do, is to to understand what Paul said when he said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And when you see internal dissent, then, then you say, there it is. There is Satan's plan. There is Satan's attack. And so, and so what happened here, the way this was overcome, they over, they over, they overcame the, the, the uh, words of insult mockery by just ignoring it. They prayed, went on about their work, didn't pay attention to them. They responded to the acts of physical violence by vigilance. And now the, the, the way this divisiveness is, is dealt with is by the wise intervention of leaders. Nehemiah took the bull by the horns. He was mad. And he said, he said, this is not right. Here, here our own people are, are, uh, requiring the debts of these who have sacrificed themselves to work on this wall and to accomplish this work. They've had to mortgage their houses. They've had to borrow money to, to, to survive from, from the rich, richer ones among us. And now we're calling in those loans. And charging usury against our own brethren, which the law strictly forbade. Uh, they could charge usury to those outside of the people of Israel, but not, not to their own people. If, you, if your buddy borrowed money, just loan it to him, let him pay you back what he, what he borrowed. Um, and, and now you're, you're selling their sons and daughters into slavery? He says, not so. This cannot, this cannot happen. And so he, he brought about so, so a so powerful a rebuke and reproof, and he's the governor, that that they overcame that. And now the last one. 
me tell you something about Satan. He is a dirty fighter. He, he has no scruples. He has no conscience. And the only reason he started with poking fun is, you know, Satan's no sucker. If he, if he can get you to quit just by, by making fun of you, then why, why do all this other stuff? Now, if he can make you quit by physical violence, then, you know, that, that'll, that'll work. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get it done. But, you know, Satan's a master at, uh, at the path of least resistance. You see, it's, it'd be a lot harder. It'd be a lot, I believe it'd be a lot harder to thwart the purpose of this church by physical, a threat of physical violence. I believe that probably polarizes, I mean, mobilizes, pull us together. Make us, make us say, you know, this, this, we're gonna stand. Uh, but that internal dissent, man, that's hard. That's really hard. And so here's the last one. This was a personal attack on the leaders. You see, if you can, if you can substantially doubt the intentions, the ability, of your leaders to lead, then what that does is says, I'm not going there. All confidence is, is lost and you can't press on. And so, and so people who are in a position of leadership, pastors, teachers, um, husbands, parents, employ, employers, whatever, whatever the case might be, an army of people. Uh, you must you must have confidence in your leaders. And so listen to what listen to what happens in chapter six. <clears throat> Sanballat brings a letter to to the people, wherein was written verse six. It is reported among the heathen. And Gashmu saith it. <laughs> I heard somebody say that somebody said, Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest a wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. Nehemiah, we've, we've, we've received pretty reputable information that uh, you're aspiring to be the king. You're doing this for your personal gain. You're doing this to aggrandize yourself. As soon as you get this wall built, you'll rebel against your Persian masters, and you'll set yourself up to be the king. Now, here's all the people standing around. They've got a trowel in one hand. They've got a sword in the other hand. And every one of them looks over at Nehemiah, and they think, hmm, you reckon there's any truth to that? Have we been busting our guts for all this time, subjecting our families to need just for him so that he could aggrandize himself? I don't know if you've been following anything about the elections in Kenya. It's been on the national news. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an international event of note. They had an election, the 27th, and 
their, the man who has been their leader for 24 years, everyone is absolutely and thoroughly convinced that he has basically sought his own wealth, welfare and, and uh, his financial wealth and that of his political cronies. And, and uh, you only have to drive along the roads and see the pathetic conditions of the roads, for one thing, but of the conditions that people live in to think, you know, that's probably true. And, and the man who, whom he handpicked to succeed him and to run on, on their party's ticket was the son of the first president, the first dictator of Kenya, a guy, a guy named Kenyatta. And, and all the people knew. There's, there's the guy that won, his name is Kibaki. And everybody, all, all our, all of our people were for Kibaki. They, they, they couldn't stand the thoughts of the ruling party going back into office because their nation has just been brought to ruin through, through this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm entertaining, frankly, some hopes that, that Kibaki will be better than Moy. I don't, I don't know. Who knows? It's corruption and graft is just, is endemic in Kenya. I don't, I don't know how it could ever be rooted out. It'll have to be rooted out by someone who's willing to be, take tremendous criticism and it'll be hard. But anyway, so now they're all looking at Nehemiah. And that, he says, he says, Gashmu, Gashmu saith it, whoever that was. We've, we've gotten some, we've gotten some information in our hand. Nehemiah, what is your real motivation for this? What are you doing this for? Furthermore, thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, let us take counsel together. Now they said, we're going to go tell the king on you. Now why don't you stop this work and let's, let's talk about this whole business of this wall. Well, verse 8 is all you can do. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as you say, but you feigned them out of your own heart. You've made all this stuff up. For they, are all, they, for they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Then verse 14, My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and on the prophet, prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets, that they would have put me in fear. Now you see, Nehemiah is going to say, Okay, I've got to do something to prove to them that, that I'm not guilty of this. But all that Nehemiah does is says, is says to them, you have made this up. And you're trying to stop the work. We know what you're doing, and it won't work. Now, there had to be something, there, there's got to be something said here at this point. Because when, the, when, it, when it was first brought up, undoubtedly, everybody thought, hmm, why, why has he been so energetic for this project? But you know, then they have to do this. They've got to think back over all of their experiences with, with, uh, Nehemiah. And when all rational thinking comes into play, they say, that's not true. He's not doing this for himself. He's doing this for us. And so a leader, of course, in this, this particular situation is is highly vulnerable. 
But what he does is says, this is not true. And then he turns and talks to God and says, God, would you bring their wickedness down on their own heads? Lord, this is important work. And so verse 15, so the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elo, in, the, in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were round about saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Well, we hope this morning. We hope this morning that, that there is no one out there who is so wicked in his heart as to be downcast because we're still meeting here 24 years later. Who knows? Whether they are or not, we cannot say. But what what remains for you and me is to do this. It's to say, God has called us to an extremely important work. And that is to maintain the public worship of God In the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, the Zion of God, the family of God. All of those words used to describe the church of God. And I'm not going to let men poke fun at me and hinder me. I'm not not even going to let threats of physical violence hinder me. I'm not going to let internal dissent, the disappointments of men, stop me. I had a conversation with my brother a couple of days ago, Doug. And I tell you, I'm, I come to admire Doug more every day of my life. Um, and he and I were talking about a mutual acquaintance of ours who, in whose church there was dissent. There was, there's, this church is going through a, a, a time when there's not agreement about a course of action that's being taken. A serious disagreement. And Doug said this. He said, you know, if, he says, I, I don't deserve to be in the, in the church of God. I'm not here because I deserve it. I'm here because of God's grace. He said, if, if, if the, if my church decided today that they wanted to put me out of the church for whatever reason, he said, I'd be sad about it, but he says, I'd, I'd just go and beg them. Wouldn't you just let me sit on the back row and hear preaching and sing songs to God? You wouldn't, you wouldn't deny me that, would you? You know, it blessed my heart to hear him say that. Um, for a lot of reasons. But you know, there's a single-minded determination that the public worship of God is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's, it's really bigger than us. And so when we stay focused on who God is and what God has called us to do, then when men disappoint you, which they will, there's no doubt that that will happen. It's happened here before. It'll happen again. Men will disappoint you. Situations will disturb you. But you see, if you let it, it'll throw you off the track of what is really important in life. And you know who's going to lose on account of that? You. You're going to be the loser. Because if, if you allow anything to hinder your passion for the public worship of God, you lose. 
And there will be every effort made to, to dampen your spirit. Satan will do everything in his power. He'll even come to you and say, I wonder what really makes Brother Mike tick. I wonder what he's really, what he's really up to. Why, why does he do some of the things that he does? Well, there's one simple thing that a lot of people never consider. Go ask him. <laughs> what what'd you, what'd you do this? Why are you doing this? And I uh, had, a, had a good brother ask me that question not long ago. I told him about something I'd done. And uh, that I'm sure a lot of people would think was the most stupid thing that I've ever done in my entire life. And maybe it is. But I, I gave him my rationale for it. He said, he said, Brother Mike, why did you do that? I gave him my rationale for it. Um, and, and so he said, hmm, you know, I, I can kind of see your point on that. See why you did that. So, so here it is in the book of Nehemiah. Four or five, you count the first one getting people started in the first place. Five hindrances to spiritual work in the kingdom of God, in your church, in your family. Always be on the lookout for it. You wives, be on, be on the lookout for Satan's devices because Satan might come to you and say, what, what do you wonder what your husband's really doing. Wonder why, wonder why he, wonder why he says and does the things that he does. You husbands might go to your wives and wonder what, what's motivating them. And if you begin to doubt, have suspicions, this is honest truth. Now I heard this myself. I know, I know of a church somewhere where a man and woman got a divorce. They're still going to church. They're sitting on opposite sides of the, of the building. I thought, mercy. Somebody, somebody got in there and, and, and when we got a good suspicion of who that somebody is, old San Ballot and Shamu or whatever his name was, uh, motivated by Satan. My dear friends, we have a great work before us. And you know what I want to, what I want to do in the years that God would let me have remaining here in this world? I want to always be on the wall working to bring about good for the people of God and for, for you, for me, for the glory of God. And if God will fill all of our hearts with that, then, then, uh, we'll have success. We'll die successful. And then we'll leave it to the next generation to, to make it or break it according to their wisdom. May God give us such a heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we have thought on weighty things here this morning. Yea, Lord, we have thought on things close to home. It's close to each of us. Because, Lord, every one of us sitting here this morning has experienced these assaults of Satan. Lord, I pray for this assembly that you would bless each and every one of us to not be ignorant of Satan's devices. I pray, God, that you would, you would bless that we would have such a holy, high, passion for the public worship of God in the church of God that we 
would lay hold of your grace, your all-sufficient power, to succeed in that until the day that you call us home to be with you. Lord, may it never be said that, that ugly words made us quit or threats of violence made us quit or the disappointments of men made us quit or even gross failures of leaders would make us quit. Lord, bless us to see that this vision is higher than any of those things. To deal with all of them in a in a godly way. To ask God for strength to to overcome the mocks and tauntings of men. Even the strength to stand against physical violence. Lord, wisdom to to put down uh, dissension in our own hearts. And Lord, either the, the grace to look over our leaders for good, or if they truly are bad, get rid of them in a godly way. Help us, O oh Lord, we need you every day. But we also have an important work to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 184. Thank you for listening. 
Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.